0: Hello and welcome to Whose Line of Code Is It Anywhere, where everything is made up and the story points don't matter?
1: No, 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 Sam. What, too soon? It's greater than code, because people matter.
0: Oh, right. So story points don't matter, but people do? Is that what you're saying?
1: No. Oh. Yes.
0: I'm confused. <laughs> I'm confused too.
1: Well, it's greater than code, and I'm Jay Bobo, one of your panelists. I'm panning it off next to Mandy.
2: Hi, everybody. I am Mandy, and I am pleased to welcome our guest today, Jesse Pollack. He is a builder and a writer who has gained attention for his thoughtful analysis of startup culture and progress, a Hack New York fellow, and college dropout. Jesse was an engineer at BuzzFeed before he started Clef and has launched products that have reached hundreds of thousands of people. Leading the product team at Clef, he works every day to make sure the entire internet is safer and easier to use. Welcome, Jesse. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing good. Thanks for the kind introduction. Better than I could have said it. (laughs) I'm doing really good. Uh, It's a sunny day in Oakland, California, and the sun is like seeping below this line of clouds, and it's orange, and I'm looking out from the 12th floor of our office, and it's really, really beautiful. I'm just lucky to be here.
0: That sounds great. So we like to start our show by uh, learning a little bit more about our guests. So, how did you get started in this whole computering thing?
3: <laughs> in the whole computering thing, some people would say it was a early start, but I consider it like a pretty late start. I didn't actually, and you know, I never wrote my first line of code until my first semester of college. So that was the fall of 2011, and before that, I always had an interest in technology. I like took apart iPhones and jailbroke them but I never realized that there was like a layer underneath that whole system that I've been interacting with where you could actually program the things that were going on. And so in my first semester of college I started uncovering that and started realizing that no, I didn't want to be an environmental engineer. I actually wanted to write code and and build things for people. And that was like the beginning of a of an awakening and that semester I also met my two now co-founders. Then a year later, uh, we started Cleft together. And then a year later, I dropped out of school. And that was three and a half years ago. So uh, it's been a very rapid acceleration into into doing this.
0: Well, that's really interesting. So it sounded like you were going to school for an EE degree, sorry, environmental engineering degree. And did you take a programming class or was this like extracurricular hacking? Or
3: Well, it was a combination of things. My last semester of high school, after I'd gotten into Pomona, which is like a little liberal arts school, doesn't have an engineering program. So it was where I decided to go. But every other school I applied to had been an engineering school, but I ended up like wanting to go to Pomona for a variety of reasons, including being able to play soccer there. In my last semester of high school, I took a math class and part of that math class was just copy and pasting some like snippets of code into MATLAB oh. and messing around with that. And I got really interested in that and like how that could be just like what that was because I'd never seen anything like it before. And so then my first semester of college, I took one CS class, but then I also was like, how do I do this outside of class? And so I started building a little Ruby on Rails app, which went on to be like uh, something called 5C Rideshare, which was the first thing I ever built. and has hmm. coordinated probably like, you know, 20 or 30,000 rides to and from the airport for students at college where I went. And I also court, like set up an independent study where I could learn how to use Rails that I got college credit for. So it was like, I was exposed to this at the end of my senior year of high school. And then my first semester of college, I was like, well, let's see what this is really about. And it was a rapid introduction.
0: Cool. I'm always interested in how people came into this because like I started, you know, working with computers in a very usery sort of way as a teenager. And then I didn't really get into programming until I was 26 or so. Then like a couple of years later, I got the CS degree. So I feel like I did it backwards. And I'm always curious about how other people came into this sort of thing.
3: Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think one of the beautiful things about this industry, and obviously there's so much more work to do, but there's so many different paths that you can take to get to being an engineer, to get to being a designer, to get to being anything in uh, the technology industry. And for me, one of the things I really love watching and talking to is, is exactly what you said. It's just like, how did people get there and how do we figure out ways we can you know strengthen those paths for people who might not normally stumble into them and widen them so that more people can flow through the diverse paths that are available.
2: Yeah, I'm doing it now. It's really scary and really overwhelming and really exciting at the same time. So I'm a Ruby newbie. Yay. I'm using Codecademy like three or four times a week for hours at a time, just trying to figure out what the heck I'm doing. But it's fun so far. It's a journey.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a journey. There's so much, especially at the beginning, there's just so much time of just banging our head against walls of, like, why isn't this thing running?
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do I even?
3: How do I even, yeah. How do I even?
1: So that's a really interesting story. Could you also maybe talk a little bit about, like, this one thing to kind of go through the door of picking up, you know, uh, building your own web application. But at some point in time, you kind of started venturing towards more security sort of stuff. How did that come about? And, like, how and, like, why did that interest you?
3: Like, I mean, the way it came about was through Clef, my co-founder, B, our CEO, he was writing a thesis on the concept of usable security and really like it turned into Clef. It was exploring with a few professors, how do mobile phones and the rise of mobile phones allow us to like encode more uh, usable security standards so that we were empowering people to take the habits that they already have and use those in a secure way rather than expecting them to change their habits or do something new and so he was working on that thesis and the two of us were actually in new york for a summer together when i was working at buzzfeed and he was working at a little company called h bloom that sells flowers and we just spent a lot of time hanging out and at the end of the summer he was like why don't you come work on this with me and instead of it just being a thesis instead of it just being academic let's see if we can actually build something And for me, the idea of, I mean, the first time I saw, he had like a little prototype of Clef. The first time I saw the prototype of Clef, I was like, that's the future of the internet. Uh, Like, this is exactly where I want to be and this is exactly what I want to do. And then I think a lot of the security things fell naturally from that around understanding, you know, how important security is to the world, how important it is to our day-to-day lives and what it takes really from an engineering and product perspective to make things that people will actually use that will keep them secure. Because I think the thing we're all so used to seeing in this world is security as a concept. And then in our day-to-day lives, those security systems are just out of reach or not even just out of reach, they're way out of reach for so many people. And so for us, from the beginning, we were really looking at it the other way of, you know, we think this is what the future is going to be like. This is what we think the way people should be using the Internet is. Now, how do we wrap the security protocols into that? How do we expose those security protocols in a way that's really, really usable and really, really accessible so that everyone can have that future rather than just a select few?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, I think I probably generated my first PGP key about 20 years ago. And I've never used PGP in actual use. Right. Right. It's just like it's this academic thing. I'm like, oh, that's neat. Throw it away.
3: Yeah, I was reading a really interesting blog post yesterday that was by Filippio. You know, it was on Reddit or Hacker. it was one of those on Twitter. And it was talking about how he was someone who had done like everything for PGP. Um, you know, he had a master key and he used those to generate short term, short lived like sub keys that could be used that he could rotate and he published them in all places he like went and did face-to-face meetups to do key exchanges so that he could build a network without having to trust like you know the internet infrastructure to build that network and at the end of it he was just like i get two emails a year that are encrypted and <laughs> any email i get that's encrypted can be bypassed by me sending a response that says, Hey, I'm in vacation. I don't have access to my master key. Can you just send it in plain text? Or I lost access to this key. Here's a new key for me. And he looked at that and he was like, look, it's just not this system has been around for so long. And there's some good parts about it. And it does a lot of really cool things, but it's fundamentally unusable and therefore it'll never be a standard. And therefore it's just not worth doing. And so he was advocating what I think a lot of people are advocating nowadays, not because of PGP, but for other reasons of just using Signal and using short-term encrypted communication rather than trying to uh, maintain and continue to use like long-term persistent encrypted identities or cryptographic identities. Yeah.
1: So you've mentioned CLEF. Could you talk a little bit more about what CLEF is and as it deals with trying to create security tools that are easy for the masses to use?
0: Mere mortals. <laughs>
3: Clef is what we call the future of two-factor authentication. Uh, And I guess I should explain two-factor authentication before I uh, move on. And two-factor authentication is when you uh, use two different things to identify yourself when you log into a website. And so those two things can be um, something you are, something you know or something you have. Something you are is like a fingerprint, something you know is like a password, and something you have is like a phone. And the reason two-factor authentication is becoming a standard is because when you verify two of those things, like phone and a fingerprint, you're much more likely to be who you say you are than when you're just verifying one of them. And the standard for two factor in the world right now is pretty much a password, which we're all used to using plus a verifying of a phone ownership. Uh, and that can be done through, you know, getting a text message that you type in a code or using a Google authenticator app. And then some other things that are like that, but different is like using a YubiKey, which plugs into your computer and you tap uh, and it's like a standalone cryptographic device. And, with clef really what we're trying to do and what our our vision has been is we see two factors this really really important thing but in you know consumer environments where it's deployed like facebook and twitter Because it's hard to use, because it adds additional burden on top of this already really frustrating system of passwords, it sees really low adoption. So, you know, less than 1% in a standard environment. And what we're trying to do with CLEF is figure out how do we build something that has the security of two-factor and keeps people safe like two-factor, but is also something that they want to use and something that's easy to use and something that they're going to choose over passwords. And so for, you know, the four and a half years we've been building CLEF, our entire thesis has been that. How do we take systems that already exist that are secure and make them really, really easy to use? And so Clef, you know, you can download it at getclef.com. Uh, you can use it on a bunch of websites on the Internet, uh, Bitcoin sites. If you have a WordPress site, that's a really popular thing. Our WordPress plugin, you know powers logins on almost a million WordPress sites on the internet. And so what it looks like is you walk up to a computer, you have the clef up on your phone, you hold up your phone and you're logged into the website. We verify the phone using a private key that's stored on the phone. And we verify your fingerprint using touch ID or, or the same thing on Android. And so it's two different factors. You know, we're using something you are and something you have versus something you know and something you have But it's the same level of security and it's so much easier to use that we're finding that people want to choose this over passwords. And that's a remarkable difference because when people want to use something, they're going to use it. But when people don't want to use something, they're not going to use it. And the only security that matters is the security you use. And so for us, that's just like that's it. That's that's all we care about. That's all we focus on. And everything else kind of falls to the side.
2: Due to current events in our country right now, security seems to be on everybody's mind at the moment. People are talking about the need more than ever right now for citizen cybersecurity correlated to the rise of mass surveillance. Can you speak to that?
3: Yeah, just to clarify kind of those words, because there are some big words there. I think what people are really talking about is given the election of Trump and given, I think, what many observers, political observers are seeing as kind of a move in our country towards a more fascist government or a more controlling government where there's potential for oppression and there's potential for silencing of voices and there's potential for, you know, jailing of journalists and all those things we see in countries that we've historically looked on as others and we've historically looked on as like, how could that be possible? Given that shift in our country, I think a lot of people are talking about you know, what does the individual need to do to keep themselves safe, especially people who are actively resisting, people who are going up against Trump or going up against the white supremacist side of our political spectrum and say, hey, this isn't OK. This isn't normal. This isn't real. We need to fight this. The topic of how do those people keep themselves safe? How do they keep their communication safe? How do they make sure they aren't silenced is really important. Um And so that's just like a little clarification.
0: Yeah, I was just wanted to point out that like these are not abstract theoretical concerns either. Like since the election, we've seen a a dramatic spike in hate crimes. Many of us who are white male privileged persons are starting to experience the reality of personal unsafety that a lot more marginalized communities have been dealing with all along. And those communities are dealing with even more of that. So this is not like hey, let's all talk about security because it's interesting, right? People's lives are in the line here.
3: Yeah.
2: So what are some things that we can do to keep people safe?
3: There's a whole host of things. I mean, there's been some really great blog posts, which I can, I can link to and share afterwards. But I think... The key things to consider are the privacy of your communications and the privacy of your activities and how security relates to that. And so when we're thinking about the privacy of communications, you know, when you want to be talking to people and when you want to be communicating in private or in secret, historically people have felt that things like text message or things like phone calls, those are private communications. You know, even if there's some fear that those might be listened in on, I think there's generally been the sense among the greater public That when you're talking to someone, when you're texting with someone, you can rely on the fact that you are going to be the only two people that are, you know, privy to that conversation. And uh, one important thing that There's been a lot of encouragement, which is something I also very encourage. It's switching those communication channels to channels that are fully encrypted versus channels that are unencrypted. Because even if the cell phone company says, hey, we're not going to look at your messages, we're not going to listen to your calls, which they don't say because they are listening to your calls and they are looking at your messages and they are giving it to the government. Yeah. Even if they were to say that, the way that information is traveling through the internet in an, quote, unencrypted format Means that the government who's really good at hacking our internet systems and is really good at pressuring companies into giving them whatever information they want, they can get those communication. And so even if a company says, we don't want to give it, the government's going to get it. And so when we switch to encrypted channels with tools like Signal, which you can all download on iOS or Android, put in your phone number and start texting and calling people in an encrypted channel, when you switch to an encrypted channel, what that means is that the way it travels over the internet, it can't be stolen, it can't be broken, it can't be taken and read by the government. And so that's actually private. And when you're talking about important things. And when you're talking about resisting, and when you're talking about the resistance to white supremacy and the resistance to fascism, and there are potential side effects and potential harm that can come to you, making sure that you're using encrypted channels like signal is really, really important. One of the things I've been most excited about—I I would say skeptical but excited—ties back to what we were talking about earlier around like usable security is that we are starting to see people like WhatsApp and we're starting to see people like Facebook take the things that have been pioneered in security-first projects like Signal and wrap them back into the software that billions of people are using uh, and providing that security and encryption by default. And there's still flaws and there's still, I think, fears around the centralization that occurs there and the centralization that comes with using a platform like WhatsApp or Facebook. But that standard and that default being encoded, I think, is really, really important. So that's my like spiel on messaging, I would say. <laughs>
2: As someone who isn't a security expert, how do I evaluate various service providers?
3: If you're looking to do messaging, download Signal. If you want to do anonymous browsing, which is important, use Tor. Don't evaluate them yourself. You will be unable (laughs) to. It is even people who are security experts, even people who are journalists who write about this, even people who are cryptographers, it takes so much diligence and so much knowledge and so much investigation to actually determine what are, what's going on here. That instead of trying to do it yourself, instead looking to experts. And you know, someone might call me an expert, but I definitely wouldn't call myself an expert. But you know, look at what the people at Whisper Systems are saying, and Moxie Marlinspike. Look at what Bruce Schneier is saying. Trust the people who know everything there is to know about this, and don't try and make a decision for yourself.
1: See now I feel like that works for developers right that works for people who are who have some knowledge of kind of what's happening within the technology mm-hmm. industry but like like, how do I do with, let's say, like my little cousin, right? How do I, you know, who lives in the inner city? How do I have this conversation with dear old mom and dad, you know, because I'm still trying to get them to stop using the same password for 200 some accounts, you know? Uh, <laughs> mom, you can't use the same password for your Chase bank account as you use for your email. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. That that sort of thing. I'm, and I don't know if you would agree, you know, uh, let me know, but I'm very much of the position that developers are a very privileged class, and that it's kind of our responsibility to develop tools for people that are kind of you know, opt out by default when it gets into stuff like security, uh, because it has all types of implications. You know, we're talking about stuff from like stop and frisk to cops grabbing a kids phone to it becoming, you know, uh, a whole completely different issue, you know, when you're getting to things like search and seizure. I mean, what's your opinion of that, that where we are kind of uh, politically says that we're very much in a place where it's definitely a possibility, where the side of the law is probably going to be—you know—it's going to be the other side, right? Mm-hmm. We may not—we may not stand in the same position that the uh, president-elect's administration will. So it's kind of—it's our responsibility to kind of put some of this stuff out there. Like, would you agree with that? And like, what sort of things can you know our listeners do, you know, within their workplace to uh, address that possible responsibility?
3: yeah absolutely. And I think that goes back to what I was mentioning earlier around you know Facebook rolling out encrypted messaging in messenger and WhatsApp rolling out encrypted by encrypted messaging by default and for all of WhatsApp. Um, I think those things happened because inside of WhatsApp and Facebook, there was one or two or a team of people who were like, "Hey, like we think this matters." We think that people deserve this. We think that this is important for the world. And, you know, that team of people then went and collaborated with Whisper Systems at WhatsApp because they knew Whisper Systems and Signal are the people who are the best at this in the world. And we want to take what they know and bring it into our platform and bring it in as a default. So I think every day as developers, we have the opportunity to make decisions that makes our software and the tools we build either more secure and more private. Or less secure and less private. And invariably there's a spectrum there and we won't always be able to choose the more secure, more private due to, you know, budget constraints or whatever the constraints may be. But I think having that in our head that we are the people who are making these decisions. We are the people who are building the infrastructure and tools that every other person in the world is using. And we want to be making that more secure. We want to be making that more safe. We want to be making that more private. I think taking that attitude is really important. In terms of what you were saying about, you know, communicating with your mom, and that speaks to another thing, which is our responsibility as people who hold a relatively large amount of knowledge about this, as educators, to people who hold a relatively, you know, smaller amount of knowledge about this. And you're right, your mom's never going to go read Bruce Schneier, she's never going to go look at whisper (laughs) systems, like your little cousin, maybe, I mean, maybe your mom, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to rule that possibility out. But like, you can, and then you can go to your mom and you say, Hey, mom, like, these are what I recommend you do. And this is why. And uh, coming from a friend or coming from a family member or coming from a peer, that's going to be heard and it's going to be received and it's going to be internalized in a major way. Uh, whereas, you know, reading it on CNN or whatever, it's going to just go through their someone's head and come out the other side. And so I think we have some responsibility about that. And I mean, just from talking earlier before the show, it sounds like at least you're already doing that, you know, organizing crypto parties and setting up Places where people can come and opt into education around this stuff, I think, is really, really important. So, do you
2: recommend, like, as an introduction, just telling somebody to use, like, a password manager, like LastPass or One Password? Is that like one way that you can just get somebody started?
3: Yeah, password managers make everyone's life easier and more secure. Just as default, I use One Password. It's one of my favorite tools in the world because it's seamless and it, it works really well and it helps me generate 32 character passwords that I never have to – oh, I mean uh, 35. I'm not going to give that away. <laughs> um, no, it helps me. Plenty of entropy there. <laughs> Plenty of entropy. No one's going to be guessing that. I think, yeah. Absolutely. That's a really good point of just like switching to a password manager is the one of the single biggest things you can do for your account security. And security is necessary for privacy. Those two things are interlinked in a way that's like unmistakable and totally important. Like you cannot have a private life. You cannot keep your communications secret. You cannot keep your activities private unless you practice good security. And that's a hard thing, but it's the harsh reality about the internet today
0: riffing on that for just a second, it seems to me that as people with a lot of power in the software industry, another of our responsibilities is not only making available uh, encryption of data in flight, but we also have to be very careful about how we steward the data that we store and make sure that we are encrypting the data at rest as well. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, we just find ourselves building these giant troves of highly attractive captive data.
3: Totally. Again, going back to um, just the concept of security by default, there are companies out there that are building tools that make that sort of encryption at rest and securing of data at rest really easy. So, you know, if you're using AWS and you want to have all of your database encrypted by default, you just check a box in RDS and it's all done for you and your keys are rotated and you have a full audit log. And everything's just there for you. And so, yeah, you could run your own Postgres or MySQL server, but, you know, using AWS, not only is are they going to hand, handle all the scaling, but they're also going to do all of that encryption for you. And I think that's really, really, really important. Uh, and so figuring out, you know, how as developers, do we choose tools that allow us to encode secure practices by default. I think that's really important. And also, how as developers do we build tools for other developers that make that possible? Mm -hmm. And so I I really love, there's a blog post on Convox, which is like a company that does, they build an open source platform on top of some Amazon tools to make it really easy to deploy web applications. Uh, And they wrote a great blog post on just like, how do you use AWS KMS, which is their key management service to just easily encrypt and decrypt data. And I think that sort of education by developers and that sort of uh, exposure to the tools that are really easy to use for making these secure practices available in our software is exactly what we need more of in this industry.
1: That's interesting. I have a, a question about that. Um, as far as tools and resources, what are some tools and resources that you've come across? Kind of like in in making this move and creating a tool that handles two-factor authentication. Well, you know, what are some things that you've pulled up? Some things that you see. What are the, what's the information that you're consuming, just to make sure that you know you and your team are kind of uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak.
3: Well, one of the things that we try and do as a team, and I think it's generally good practice for pretty much everyone, is we don't try and do cryptography and we don't try and implement new security systems and we don't try and do anything that someone hasn't done for 20 years. And so all of CLEF is built on, you know, standards that have been around for 20 years and the only new things we do is wrap those standards in technology like mobile phones and wrap them in technology like something called the CLEF wave, which is one of our transmission techniques. But we don't do new security. And so using libraries like NACL or SALT, uh, which is like basic cryptographic, prim- not primitives, but like one higher level than primitives that let you easily encrypt and decrypt data, that let you easily do asymmetric encryption and asymmetric key signing. Using those libraries, uh, like Knackle or Salt, Bouncy Castle, there are a variety of them across all the different platforms. That's really, really important. Another thing we do is we're we're really, really heavily invested in strong users of AWS. We think that they, I was talking about this earlier, but we think that they do a really good job of making tools easy to use and we also think that they do a lot of really sane and smart and secure things around how they move and store data. And so whenever we have the opportunity to, rather than building something ourselves or outsourcing it to a third-party like party software as a service, we're going to go with AWS and we're going to go with a tool that they provide because we trust them, we know they take security very seriously. We know they do things like encrypting our data at rest. And that gives us a sense of confidence that we often don't even have in our own code, just because we are fallible and we know we're fallible. And we always want to be on our toes to think, how could we mess this up? How can we take this off of our plate so we can't mess it up so that someone who's working on this problem full time can do it right? So, yeah, I'd say like use defaults, use libraries that have been around for a long time and then trust parties who can do a better job than you because you're more likely to mess it up than someone who's working on it full time. (laughs) And I think that kind of goes counter to what a lot of people might think, because a lot of times people like you need to build this yourself or you can't rely on a third party. But I think it's really important to find third parties that can do these things right and then offload the responsibilities of uh, security to them.
0: Find some giants whose shoulders you can stand upon. Exactly. Okay. So Jesse, you brought up two factor authentication earlier and uh we we talked a little bit about that, but like, I'm just going to go out there and possibly look really stupid when I say this and I, I'm okay with that. So I got a new phone, which I usually do around Black Friday every two years. And uh I transferred all my stuff over from the old phone to the new phone and I wiped the old phone. And then I discovered that Google authenticator settings don't Transfer, so I got locked out all of all of the stuff that I had set that up for, and I was annoyed by that. So I I uh, ordered this YubiKey, and I've actually I'm holding it up to the camera here. Our listeners can't see that, but like it's on my keychain. Nice. Like after I had ordered it, I was thinking, well, how's that going to help me for like authenticating to my mobile apps? Because I can't plug this thing into my phone. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I'll just use it for like my work AWS account. Turns out AWS doesn't support YubiKey. <laughs> So, like, if I'm sitting out here making all these less than entirely informed decisions, like, what hope does anybody else have? Uh, but actually, that's not even my question, right? My question <laughs> is, how is this so complicated and what can we do about
3: it? <laughs> yeah. How, how do it work? <laughs> yeah. How do
2: I do the thing?
3: YubiKids here. I'll pull out my YubiKids. Mine is this. Ooh, tiny. It's just very tiny and it just, it stays in my computer. And then when I, am you just got a message from my Yuba key in the chat. I don't know if y'all see that, but I'm not trying uh, to pronounce that. <laughs> because because it's it's just gibberish for listeners um, because it's in my computer when you tap it it tries to do its authentication and so that often results just in me bumping my computer and sending gibberish to my friends via text or my work colleagues <laughs> via slack it's like one of the more annoying things in the world YubiKey yeah YubiKey is uh there's not that many places you can use it which is uh perhaps unsurprising but uh you can use it on Google, you can use it on GitHub. I use some software as a service, one called Sentry that supports it. But for the most part, I think like the calculus of businesses is that especially for consumer applications, not that many people are gonna go out and spend twenty-five or fifty dollars on a dedicated device to do two factor. You know, if you assume that one percent of all consumer users are gonna enable two factor at all, you gotta assume that it's like 0.00001% of people who are going to go out and spend $25 rather than just putting in their phone number. And so, like, for day-to-day use, like, YubiKey for a regular person is pretty useless. For developers, I think there's some use, particularly, uh, in, like, more custom-y use cases. Uh, I know at Facebook, they really heavily use, uh, YubiKey to bind Developer private keys to specific devices. So to a YubiKey attached to a computer. And that means that they can like know for certain that that private key wasn't stolen off of that device and being used from somewhere else. And so I think in that use case, having a dedicated hardware device that isn't perhaps vulnerable to malware or vulnerable to interception, like a text message might be, is really important. But for a day-to-day person, there's just not that much to do with it. Um, We have a bunch of them in the office here, and they aren't very heavily used. I think I'm the most avid YubiKey user. In terms of developers, like we're building a new product right now uh, alongside CLEF. It's called Instant 2FA, and it's basically a toolkit for developers that lets anyone set up two-factor authentication in a website in around 30 minutes. So whereas it might take a couple weeks normally, we build a really cool product that I'm very much in love with that makes it dead simple. One of my favorite properties of it is the way it's built. We are able as a company and providers to basically do continuous improvement of the product and roll things out to developers with them just checking a box. Right now, we support only TOTP, uh, which is Google Authenticator app. So it's you have an app on your phone, it cycles through codes and you type one in. But we're going to be rolling out SMS soon, and all it will take for a developer to enable that is a checkbox. We'll be rolling out YubiKey soon. All it will take for a developer to enable that is a checkbox. And so I'm really excited about that because it means that as we have better two factor technologies and better authentication technologies coming through and becoming available to consumers, because we're a service provider that's focused entirely on doing this one thing, we can build those tools into the platform and then every developer that's using our platform can get access to them. And that sort of like rollout of cool, new, secure technology is important and exciting.
1: So I'm a little bit of a skeptic, right? (laughs) So I want to throw this out. One of the things that I'm concerned about is that what happens is, right, like mom and Dural dad, they're not going to be air gapping like computers anytime soon, right? (laughs) No one's going to be like, you know, pressing stuff to, you know, like a read only DVDs and stuff or whatever. So my thing is, too, is that I think that and I think you made a good point earlier, right, getting to this, like we have to kind of, you know, rest on the shoulders of giants with some of this stuff but mm-hmm. understand that, that that's also where the weakness is with some of this stuff you know if we say hey everybody go use google well i mean as long as Google's not evil then i guess we're okay right and so this is one of the things that we sometimes get into or or like sometimes when you go in and you say okay all right i'm utilizing you know last pass or one password or, or maybe even uh an entity is that in the end right where you probably have more security right is is when you have a lot of different options right you don't have like one point of failure and Mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about that right because it's kind of like what you're pretty much saying in some cases like well i hope aws right is has has my needs kind of like they're thinking about me at all times and there's no sort of secret sort of uh
0: nsa backdoor
1: exactly you know nsa backdoor that's in place you know because this is real stuff that's happening you know, and um, I could you speak to that at all, a little bit?
3: Totally. I think I might have alluded to this before the show started of uh, my opinion, I think, here is different than a lot of other people's opinion. And I think there's like there are two sides. So it's a spectrum, right? Necessarily, you have a spectrum of, you know, how much do we want to centralize these sorts of things because we think when people are doing it and focused on it full time, they're going to do a better job than us. But that comes with the downside of when you centralize things, that's a central point of attack where for instance, you know, the government could break into AWS and then they could steal everyone's data and we would all be done versus how much do you want to. So that's one side of the spectrum, like full centralization. In fact, there are no startups. There are no open source libraries. It's just Google doing all of our web services for us and we're all just like, God, this is horrible. We live in the panopticon. Or on the other side, like on the flip side, it's not horrible and they figured out a way to be like good people, whatever. I mean, who knows if either of those things are possible? And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who are saying, we shouldn't trust anyone. You know, we should verify everything ourselves. We should write all of our own software. We should use only open source libraries. We should make sure that everything we do is fully trustless and decentralized. And, you know, with that, you especially have... People, uh, and you see tools like the blockchain, like Ethereum and and Bitcoin and Zcash, where that ethos of everything needs to be public. Everything needs to be decentralized. Everything needs to be like fully on that edge of the spectrum. And those two ends of the spectrum, like obviously you can't actually for the mass internet sit on either end. You have to find somewhere in between. And for me, I generally find that I sit like in the middle. And I think that can frustrate people who uh, know a lot about security because they're like, but like, how can you trust an organization like Google? Or how can you trust an organization like AWS? Or how can you trust an organization like Clef or Instant 2FA, right? And I think part of me sitting in the middle is definitely influenced by building an organization like that. And through the experience of building an organization like this, I've seen firsthand, hey, A, like how hard it is to do things right from a security perspective as developers it's hard it's expensive and b i've seen because i talk to you know hundreds of businesses every week i've seen how little it takes for businesses to just not do it it's like a business if a business adds two factor or doesn't add two factor the decision there is like do we want to spend two developer weeks and almost always the answer is going to be no right almost always unless they get breached or unless A or like 50 customers asks, the answer is almost always going to be no. And so if the standard and the default is just like, no, we're not going to do this, maybe we can argue that there might be an ideal world where we're all, you know, doing decentralized, trustless encryption of our data as developers. But like, that's nowhere near the world we live in. The world (laughs) we live in is developers will never do anything about security unless they are forced to, for the most part. And so figuring out how do we build tools that make it so easy they can't not do that, they can't not have security, I don't think that comes without some sort of centralization. I think it requires people working on this problem every day and figuring out how do I talk to customers, how do I talk to developers, how do I figure out ways to build tools that they'll actually use, because otherwise no one's going to use anything.
1: Wow. So I'm going to throw out something (laughs) even more divisive. Bring it. And this is the reason why developers need unions.
3: Unions.
0: Ooh, okay.
1: I mean, we could, that, that's a whole other topic, but I think that what you're talking about, Jesse, gets back into the whole thing of responsibility once again. Mm-hmm. So then you have developers who kind of see the way the world is, and you have business interests. And I think that we're at this time right now where we're talking about the effects of automation on jobs. We're talking about things like basic income. We're talking about the need to create secure tools that protect privacy. They have implications for you know the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, the only way I think as developers who are privileged class can say, hey, you know, the rise of AI is important. We should be very thoughtful about, you know, how AI is utilized, especially as it becomes better. You know, who's going to speak for that, you know, to a certain degree, right? Where does that Mm -hmm. power? From like you, you say, oh, you know, Mr. Uh, you know, CEO, Mr. President, right? I I think that you know we should implement two-factor. Oh well, you know, as you already mentioned, ah, uh, we we have other priorities.
3: -hmm. And
1: I think some of this other stuff is all, some of these other discussions are continually happening as well. So to go there, like that's probably a conversation for another time, but I just wanted to go out there and put my pitch for why we need to bring back unions in a completely different way, in a very 2016, 2017 model, so that the privileged classes can, you know, to advocate for others. But that's that's not even really a question, it's more of a statement. I don't know if you would agree with that.
3: Oh, oh, well. I'm skeptical of if we had unionized workforces among developers, whether that would actually translate to that sort of change around encoding better security practices. I'm skeptical of that. That said, like I think that unionizing developers is a really important thing, and I think that You know, over the last 30 years, the decline in unionization in this country, and then over the last 10 years, the incessant destruction and tearing down of unions by the right wing in this country is a travesty. My dad works for the AFL-CIO. I grew up in a family that's always been very pro-union, and seeing that happen and watching union membership massively decline and seeing what that does to individuals and what that does to communities, I think it's a travesty. I think if there are ways we can... Bring back more unionization and we can bring back more rights to workers. I am all for that and all, all in support, but I am skeptical of whether that would translate to security. I think like unionization is primarily used as a tool to improve the working conditions and rights of the workers rather than the products they're making. And there needs to be other forces to improve the outcome of the end product.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I've been hearing a lot of political rhetor- rhetoric recently about bringing back more manufacturing jobs. And I think a, a lot of that misses the point that manufacturing jobs weren't great because they were manufacturing jobs. They were great because they were unionized. Right, exactly. And the unions bargained, bargained for uh, like much better conditions, which brought up the middle class, which made everybody else better off. So yeah, when you said that, Jay, uh, I also had a little bit of that same skepticism that you expressed, Jesse, and I had to stop and think about it for a second. And it seems, you know, I'm used to thinking about Unions as a mechanism for collective bargaining, mm-hmm. which then, as you said, Jesse, comes into like improving worker conditions. And it seems like if you're concerned with professional standards, uh, maybe more, some increased form of professionalization where you have mm. like civil engineering has uh, standards boards and certification bodies and codes of professional ethics that <laughs> I really feel like we really should have in software. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that kind of an organization might be more effective at enforcing these kinds of professional standards. But then it occurred to me that a union is possibly another way to back that up as well. Yeah. It's just maybe not the union's primary concern, but a union can do that too.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good take.
1: Yeah, definitely. Actually, this could be a whole other show. Yes, please.
3: Bring me back.
1: Some of these insights. Right. Collective bargaining and the ability to oh i 'm going to sound like a Marxist here to stop the, the means <laughs> of production out here are, are necessary as, as it affects you know people right and we get into some of this stuff, but talking about like civil rights and liberties and whatnot, but yeah, anyways, that's the conversation for another time
3: <laughs> another time
0: we're going to take some time to thank another one of our ten dollar level patrons, Sophie Desiel from Montreal. Sophie's a Ruby on Rails developer and montreal.rb organizer. You can find her at sophiedeziel, S-O-P-H-I-E-D-E-Z-I-E-L on Twitter. Thank you, Sophie, and thank you to all of our awesome contributors. If you'd like to support us, please visit patreon.com slash code, and that link will be in the show notes.
1: Okay, Uh, so our first question is from George Adamopoulos. So, so citizens are buying a lot of Internet of Things devices that are being used for denial of service attacks. As citizens, are we responsible to some extent for them occurring, regardless of our technical ability at the time of purchase?
3: I I would say no. If you're an individual and you don't know anything about computers, and, and you just go to the store and you buy a light switch that is connected to the Internet, you cannot be expected to understand the technology behind that. You can't be expected to patch or fix the technology behind that. I just don't think that's a viable way to solve this problem. And so I think kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with the professional union and developer responsibility, I think it falls to the company. It falls to the people at the company to be like, hey, we're not going to build software. We're not going to ship software to millions and millions of homes around the world. That's going to compromise the security of the homes or compromise the security of the internet as a whole. So I definitely don't think that people are responsible for that.
1: What if we expanded that question to include like retailers, Amazon, Best Buy? Do you think they have responsibility? Like, I know that some of them stopped selling the Samsung bomb phone. Right? <laughs> that was the Samsung bomb, right? Before Samsung was like, "Oh, we're going to do a recall." I forget what the process was. Do you think that they have that responsibility, the retailers?
3: It's more blurry. I don't know. I feel like I need to think about that question a little bit more. You know, it's like, how much do we want? You know, marketplaces and distributor. I mean, I guess marketplaces and distributors already do a fair amount of like selection of the things that they make available to end consumers. So, you know, maybe that's a selection criteria. It's probably a good selection criteria, but I I think it also be a little bit nervous about. Actually, no, I'm not nervous about that. I think that since they're already doing a fair amount of auditing of like what goes on Amazon and what does Best Buy sell, I think that security of those devices should absolutely be one of the things that they bake into that calculus. And I think that's really the only way to make this be about the bottom line. Rather than just being about ethics, because if Amazon and Best Buy and the companies that are selling these IoT devices at the end of the line are like, look, we're not going to sell devices that compromise the security of the internet, then the manufacturers are going to have to change what's going on. And if they do sell those devices, then it's going to continue to be in the status quo, unless, you know, individuals in those companies step up. But I think figuring out forces that allow us to exert bottom line pressure of like, we are going to make you less money unless you do security. <laughs> I think those are really important. So I'd say that I think there is a responsibility of those retailers to do that.
0: That's an example then of something of a retailer like Amazon being able to exert market pressure on the manufacturers of those devices who exerts the market pressure on Amazon to make that an attractive decision for them?
3: Yeah, well, now we're going back to me saying no. I'm glad I didn't <laughs> say def- I'm, I'm glad I didn't say a definitive no. Yeah, I mean, it makes you think more about that. But yeah, exerting market pressure, I guess there's like a it would be good if people exerted market pressure, but do I think people have a responsibility to do that? like there's just so much education required in order to understand those mechanics as an educated consumer i feel like if i'm a developer and i know what's going on i i wouldn't buy and i shouldn't buy the sorts of iot devices that are used in these attacks but if i'm a day-to-day person i I don't think you can assign responsibility to people who don't understand the things that they are doing
0: at the risk of alienating the last listener who didn't already drop off when Jay came out as a Marxist, right? (laughs) This sounds like a classic failure of a free market. And I obviously don't know enough about markets and economics to maybe know if there is a way that we could exert this. But at least at the level that I'm at, it seems like that's a clear case for some other entity to come in and perhaps regulate a market and say, no, you actually cannot sell this, period.
3: Yeah. And they're kind of continuing on that free market train of thought. There are definitely people who can speak more eloquently about this than me. But uh, I think it also speaks to this, like the whole like fallacy of consumer choice that we as individuals have Power to, through the choices we make, influence the world and influence, like, the structures that be in capitalism and how those corporations work. And that's something that's widely proliferated that idea that we can influence that. But for the most part, that's a fallacy and it's not real. And instead, we are beholden to these structures that exist that empower corporations to continue their pursuit of making as much money as possible without uh, concern for safety, without concern for uh, security, unless it makes them more money. I think that this question kind of plays into the idea as well.
2: Another listener question comes from Wesley Ellis. He asks, what are your thoughts on benevolent malware that looks for vulnerable devices and patches them without asking for the permission from the device's owner?
3: I don't think I can give that educated a thought here. I would like to defer to people who are smarter about this than me or more informed about this than me. My sense is that, you know, there's always going to be a push and pull in software and in systems that are accessible to the entire Internet around people doing good white hats and people doing bad black hats. And we've seen a lot of people doing bad uh, with, you know, the DDoS attacks that are happening with these IoT devices. And I think there is an opportunity for, you know, groups of people to coordinate and to thoughtfully figure out how can we do good. And that might come through, you know, pushing retailers like we were talking about earlier, to not sell those devices, or working inside of companies to um, you know improve the security standards, but maybe it'd come through shipping malware that patches all these devices. And if that's something that's coordinated and well thought out and public and something that people are on board with, then I think it's a good idea. I'd be wary of just like the lone cowboy or cowgirl going out and like patching things willy nilly. Cause I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just think like if you're a black hat, that sort of isolation, I think is important because you're trying to protect yourself from people who are trying to stop you from doing bad things. But if uh, you're a white hat, there's no reason not to be coordinating and making public and discussing and having open conversation around what are we going to do? What are the good things we can do? So I, w- I would definitely push for that path much more than any individual trying to do this.
0: Yeah. On its face, that scenario of like malware that comes in and fixes your broken stuff. I mean, that's almost literally straight out of a Spider Robinson science fiction novel. Yeah. Right? It sounds wonderful. <laughs> Please. Please. <laughs> Patch my router so I don't have to. (laughs) That's great. I'm not even going to try for the ethics, though. So uh, at the end of every show, we like to reflect on uh, what we've learned or felt or or what we're going to take away from this. And Jesse, since you have a hard stop, uh, let's have you go first. What are you going to take away from this conversation?
3: So... Uh, I don't know if y'all have been following the news, but on um, Friday last week in Oakland, there was a really big warehouse fire that ended up uh, leading to the deaths of 36 people and a lot of people who were, you know, one degree of separation from me. Uh, And I've been reflecting a lot on, you know, obviously holding those people in the light, and their families in the light, and their friends in the light, but also reflecting on the structural things that allowed for something like that to happen. And one of the things we've been discussing on the show today is the balance between the responsibility of the individual in a society and the responsibility of the structures in the society and the organizations in the society to look out for the individual Post-fire, there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, the way the building was occupied, how there were people living there, and it was not up to fire code, and there were, you know, rickety staircases. And there's been, at times, talk of, like, how could these people do this? You know, how could they put themselves at risk, or how could they, you know, think this was a good idea? And one of the things that lots of people who I trust and are are saying. And, and what I've been feeling is that, you know, look, like in Oakland, in the Bay Area, and all across the country, we have massive affordable housing crises. Mm-hmm. And so that means that people who are marginalized Artists and people who aren't, you know, conforming to like the Silicon Valley stereotype, perhaps they're pushed to the edges and they don't have places to live and they need to find ways to live. And so that means that they're living in warehouses and in suboptimal conditions. And that's not the fault of the people there. We can't blame them for that. Instead, we need to look at the systems. Uh, and I think it's a similar thing with security. And it's what we've talked about all of today is that we can't expect people to just go out and magically make security happen because that's just not the reality of the world. And so I've been reflecting as we've been talking about this on the parallels between those two things about how we as a society have a responsibility to look after the people on the edges and look after the people who don't have the tools or don't have the resources to do security themselves or to get the best housing for themselves. And we need to figure out how do we put structures in place? How do we put tools in place that allow those people to be lifted up, allow them to be safe, allow them to be secure, allow them to be private. And all of us have a responsibility to do that.
2: I'll piggyback on that. That's kind of why I agreed to do the episode, not knowing much about security and just being a brand new developer. Security is something that we should be aware of as we're learning and that it matters for people all over, you know, marginalized groups and now more than ever with everything that's going on in our country, that it's something that we should be thinking about and something that we should be paying attention to. Yeah.
1: My takeaway from this episode is that uh, security is important. I mean, like, no duh, right? But it's something that we need to talk about, talk about what our responsibility as developers is, um, you know, to our companies, to ourselves, obviously, and also to the people that we care about. And um, I think it's also Two, one of the things that was said a couple of times is that we have to find better ways for people to secure their own privacy, right, and their own communications. And uh, that's, that's something else. We can't just build the thing. We have to also make sure that it's usable, right? And we have to make sure that beyond the fact that it works, that um, it's going to be adopted by people and um, it's, it's going to be uh, something that's obviously meaningful and, and helpful for them. So that, that's, that's what my takeaway was from today.
2: Awesome.
0: So in addition to the sort of superficial, like, yes, I need to learn more about security sense that I'm taking away from this, I find myself at the end of the show thinking of a quote that somebody I uh, interacted with briefly like 15 years ago uh, said, and it's stuck in my head ever since. The person whose name was Jamie Brelin, and he said, Stop calling me a consumer. I am neither a gaping mouth nor an open wallet. I am a citizen interacting in a community. And, yeah, I think this is a good reminder in to me that we aren't only interacting in a capitalist society. We also, like, I don't think it's one or the other. I think we can participate in both. Maybe I'm naive for saying that, but I think on a day-to-day basis, we do participate in both. But it's a good reminder to me that my wallet is not the only form of power that I have. I have a voice, and I have leverage I can extend to help other people. Um, so it's a good reminder to maybe pay a little bit more attention to helping other people stay safe with skills that I sort of take for granted. So thank you for bringing that back up again. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us, Jesse. This has been a wonderful chat.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: All right, And with that, listeners, we will see you next
1: week.